Welcome back to another episode of the Future Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Elser. 2017 was a devastating year in terms of hurricanes, and many people are still recovering. Hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans are still without power four months after Hurricane Maria devastated the island. This month's episode is a reflection on what lessons we may have learned from last year's catastrophes. Are hurricanes getting more frequent and intense? Will such extreme events become the new normal? How can we prepare cities to deal with such extraordinary power? I'll now hand it over to Robert Hobbins as he leads a discussion on these topics. Greetings, Future Cities podcast listeners. My name is Robert Hobbins. I'm a PhD student at the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University and a graduate fellow in the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, the UREX SRN. I research the knowledge systems and use for creating, communicating, and using climate risk information and how to improve them to better prepare for future storms in coastal cities. One of those knowledge systems is how we map, communicate, and use knowledge about coastal flood risk and is a subject of today's episode called Climate Risk and Resilience, Lessons from the 2017 Hurricane Season. In this episode, we will listen to several professors, postdocs, and graduate students from the Urban Resilience to Extreme Sustainability Research Network and listen to them discuss what we mean by an extreme event, what the terms 100-year and 500-year return period mean, discuss the possibility of a new normal of hurricane strength and recurrence, and hear solutions for how to build our coastal cities to be resilient to extreme weather events like the United States experienced during the catastrophic 2017 hurricane season. That season included the destructive hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria, and was one of the worst hurricane seasons on record. This episode is a collection of snippets from interviews I conducted over the past two months with UREX researchers. First, I will introduce each of the researchers you will hear throughout the episode, and then we will jump into today's topic. My name is Elaine Barnett. I'm a postdoc at Florida International University, uh, working for the Institute of Water and the Environment. And my background is that uh, I got my PhD from Arizona State University, some postdoctoral work on uh, fisheries in Atlantic Canada and the University of New Brunswick as a postdoc in anthropology there. And um, I now have moved into uh, looking at urban systems um, but my focus has, has, has been for a long time on just considering this question of how we can adapt to uh, environmental and economic change. So my name is Sarah Miro. I'm a, a new assistant professor in the School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning here at Arizona State University. Um, I'm also a sustainability scientist in uh, the Wrigley Institute for Global Sustainability here as well, um, and affiliated with the Urban Climate Research Center. Um, and my work is really focused on what it means for a city to be resilient and what are different strategies that they can use to enhance their resilience um, to threats like climate change and other hazards as well. I am Matt Smith. I am a second year PhD student at Florida International University also a UREX SRN grad fellow. Um, I am currently working on, as part of my dissertation work, the quantitative methods with assessing water quantity, quality, and source differences as attributed to climate variation as well as topographic or landscape variables. 
And hi everyone, I'm Sam Markoff. I'm a postdoctoral research associate here at Arizona State University in the Department of Civil, Environmental, and Sustainable Engineering. And my work primarily focuses on urban infrastructure systems and understanding uh, their risks and vulnerabilities to extreme weather events and other disruptions, and then the uh, strategies that can be implemented to minimize those risks. As a researcher of the Urban Resilience to Extreme Sustainability Research Network, what do you mean or what does a group mean by an extreme event? Well, I think an extreme event is, is something that does not happen, um, that is not part of everyday life, and that is the freak, you know, it's not a predict, it's not happening with a predictable frequency, so it's not sort of, you know, you have rain it will rain every, you know, every so often and you can estimate that it'll rain approximately this much in a day. But I think an extreme event is a sort of low probability, high impact event is what I would say. Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. I never really thought about it. I mean, when, when I, I think about extreme events, I usually just think about, uh, I mean, what comes to mind are, um, you know, hurricanes or, or, um, uh, large flooding events or, you know, we have these kinds of technical uh, definitions of, uh, you know, uh, one in 500 year uh, flooding events or, 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 you know, these kinds of technical def definitions of what an extreme is, but um, it's, uh, it might be when a series of not so extreme, extreme events um, kind of converge to produce some kind of uh, perfect storm or some kind of of, uh, of uh, risk or for for people. Uh, so it it, it it's um, it could be single events, you know, like like a, a single hurricane, it, but it could be. Uh, two hurricanes hitting uh, sequentially in the same place, uh, which we, we see is, is a, in Puerto Rico is a super, exactly. like a, a really extreme event. Um, so it's, uh, it, it comes down to uh, the various risk factors uh, that can produce vulnerabilities for people and um, how they come together in space and time. So the process of defining an extreme event has been a long conversation in the SRN for the past two years. Um, since my introduction to the SRN last year, um, I have defined an extreme event as any uh, indication of passing a threshold when it comes to uh, rainfall estimates, uh, particularly for my work, I deal with urban flooding as well as coastal flooding projections. And an extreme event would be any event that exceeds a, first of all, rainfall estimate, and then a period of inundation or flood depth um, over a certain period of time. Um, of course, this definition varies when it comes to a change in context and a different type of event. Um, so this differs, of course, when you're talking about um, extreme heat or those defined as um, extreme wind damage. 
Um, but when it comes to waters and flood inundation, um, that's how I define an extreme. Sometimes we've talked about extreme storms as such things as one in 100 year event mm-hmm. or one in 500 year event. Um, what does that exactly mean? Does it mean that you know if I live in a flood zone, I might flood once every 100 years? Um, how do you make sense of that? Yeah, well, I think that that is a, a the one in 100 year flood concept is um, it is seems to be quite misleading for a lot of people because they think that they if they live 100 years in a place that they will only experience one of those when in fact the whole idea behind a 100 year flood event is that in any given year you have a 1 in 100 or 1% chance that that kind of event will will happen and so you could have uh, that could happen two years in a row or it could happen you know fifty one one in 100 years and then one in the second 200 years that there is no just because you and just because you've had a one in 100 year event the year before that does not mean you have any less chance of having that event the next year and so i think that that's one of the this misunderstanding about um that designation has been why i think there's been a lot of discussion since this especially um in the wake of this hurricane season about the need to really rethink how we classify these events and and to stop actually thinking about flooding as um, the hundred year flood zone. Like, what are some of the implications of of misunderstanding those terms? Yeah, for, well, for resilience. Yeah, I think um, I think there are a number of implications from a the side of planning or construction. There, if if people do not understand the the risks of that, then they might um, underestimate their own vulnerability or, you know, the, ch- the probability that they're going to actually experience an event like that. And as a result, they might uh, choose a house in, in a flood zone thinking that, oh, there was a storm um, last year. So now this year, there's, a, you know, not going to, there's a you know, zero likelihood that I'll experience a flood there. Or they just think, ah, oh, the chance of one, you know, one in a hundred years, then I I don't plan to live to be a hundred, so I'll probably be fine. And so it's I think really a a risk of people underestimating um, the the chance that they'll experience that. And then of course you have the whole other issue, which is the fact that what used to be one you know one in a hundred year storms are happening increasingly frequently, and we expect that they will continue to happen more and more frequently with um, with climate change. So there's really this this question of whether we can even say with any um, with any certainty what is a hundred year storm anymore um, or estimate that into the future and so if you're using these designations to for zoning say and determining whether where people can get uh, flood insurance or things like that then that's a real concern and, and I think a real challenge. Hurricane Harvey was the third one in 500-year storm that hit Houston in the past three years. How do you make sense of that? How is that even possible? The, you know, climate change models have uh, made it clear that, uh, you know, climate change will bring uh, differences in intensities of storms, different frequencies of storms. I haven't read recently about just exactly what kinds of intensities and frequencies might uh, occur, but I, I definitely know that uh, from my reading of it that 
um, we, we would likely see more intense storms occurring. Not more storms necessarily, but uh, in, of greater intensity. Um, so, and, and that comes also with uh, the increasing water temperatures that are uh, capable of feeding storms and, uh, to make them uh, stronger, to keep them stronger. And that's what, what was uh, often mentioned about Hurricane Irma is that um, because of the uh, abnormally warm waters at that time, there was um, there was the storm was able to maintain its uh, strength as a Category Five for a much longer time than is uh, historically uh, uh, recorded. So, I think those kinds of things, those those ways that uh, uh, you know, warmer temperatures and um, and and warmer temperatures and um, and storms come together will, will uh, you know lead to these kinds of things where you know a storm can be stronger and stay stronger for longer depending on uh, temperatures. I'd like to share with you uh, some quotes from Dr. Michael Mann. He is a distinguished professor of atmospheric sciences at Penn State University, like the author of the Madhouse Effect. Uh, are you familiar with him, perhaps? Yeah. But he says that uh, the old rules don't apply anymore. We're no longer talking about chance alone. We've loaded the dice. We've loaded the weather dice by warming the planet and intensifying these storms and raising sea levels to the point where a storm that we've called a one in 1,000 year event is now a storm that we expect to happen once in maybe 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. What do you think about uh, this perhaps new normal uh, that Dr. Mann is, is talking about here? Um, this, this idea of a new normal is interesting. Um, and one of my one of the things I wonder about it if it if it is like if it's a new normal or if it's more of a no normal, um, you know, it seems like our sense of of a normal is uh, is now uh, a normality of of change. In that, uh, that what what is normal now may be a sliding scale of change that may make it hard to establish a baseline. So, I mean, for example. Prior to joining the um, UREX team, I worked with fisheries in the Atlantic. And sea temperatures have given us a series of, of events that demonstrate um, change, but it's also hard to establish what exactly happened before the event seems to disappear. So the example of that is where um, we worked with uh, small-scale herring fisher fishermen uh, and they were experiencing, you know, from around 2013 for a few years, they experienced unprecedented drops in their inshore catches of herring. And uh, they were reporting wildly different behavior of the herring. Um, and it was almost a state of emergency that, you know, there would, you know, the, the herring fisheries, the small scale inshore herring fisheries, would uh, would collapse, uh, and then a few few years later, catches improved and things were back to what we might call normal again. So there's these kinds of ephemeral changes that are, in some way, linked to something you know some uh, oceanographic changes uh, related to uh, you know temperatures and currents and uh, 
and all these these other things that are that are changing with other species uh, coming to the region. So these kinds of ephemeral changes make it really hard to establish uh, that that new baseline that we're looking for. Uh, but uh, it, it does make you know it, it's I guess the other side to the this new normal uh, that's been mentioned is, is that that uh, surprise will be uh, a part of that new normal. A new normal might involve greater um, uncertainty and unpredictability of, uh, of events because we've established a lot of our um, scientific understanding of things under um, what may be a different uh, equilibrium or a different regime of uh, ecological dynamics. That just gets me back to that question of is, is it going to be a new normal or is it going to be a no normal? Like that we're not going to know what's normal anymore. Elaine shared a provocative statement that maybe we're not talking about a new normal, but no normal. Um, and the idea that, you know, we should be ready for surprise uh, in the future of, of, of events that we haven't experienced with some intensity and frequency in the past. And even their new frequency intensities may be changing in the future that it's hard to kind of pin down a new normal curve or a new representation of the variability of the climate. Um, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you think about that response? I think that's a great way to look at it. Obviously, there are a number of variables that we have to consider how we can constrain them in order to better understand the, these general patterns and trends. Um, so saying that there is no normal um, is, of course, in the short term, a much better way of describing these patterns and store events that we see. Um, and so this also comes down to a, a question of scale, um, not only the geographical scale, but then also across time. Um, to say that there's no normal across a period of 100 years um, is one thing to say, but then within a period of 10 years, obviously, we still experience so much change, not only in the static variables such as landscape and topography, but then also those such as the technology that's involved in a response. Um, so if we can find a way to constrain all those variables into one along with those climate projections, then I would say that um, we can find a better way of describing what a new normal could be. And even though that may be a very broad definition, it still will allow us to uh, assess across a wider range of different variables. Another question uh, that's been lurking on a lot of people's minds is you know, this idea of climate change exacerbating uh, these hurricanes. Uh, what do you mm -hmm. think, if any, uh, role does climate change have in, in these massive storms? That's always a great question. The idea that human-induced events um, and change uh, will definitely exacerbate not only local effects on, of course, water temperature and surrounding coastal areas, uh, but then also the, the greenhouse gas emissions that are involved in the, the process of stirring up these different um, patterns. So, of course, once again, it's looking back into time to see what once was in order to forecast what could be in the future. And of course, in the past few decades, we've seen a lot of change, not only in the industrial sector um, when it comes to these emissions standards, uh, but also when it comes to 
um, once again, the land cover and land use. Um, obviously, these hurricanes of a certain magnitude are really driven by changes in warmer water temperatures. Um, so we're seeing that, you know, across the board, we're seeing longer hurricane seasons because we experience warmer water temperatures into a longer portion of what otherwise be the end of a fall season. So climate change as a whole, once you break it down into its different components, um, understanding how exactly humans are modifying the the physical and the technological component of an urban system, um, I think we can better understand how that impacts the risk and the potential to fuel these storms. Thank you, Matt, for those insights. Uh, let's move to Sarah. And Sarah, can you share us what you think about climate change's role in hurricane intensification? To say you know, with any certainty that this storm was a direct result of climate change. But that being said, um, we do know that as oceans warm, as climates change, the models and science suggests that there will be more extreme events like this and that we probably will see more and more of these kind of records being broken. So I guess I would say that I think these storms are an indication of a changing climate and what and that we need to be prepared to deal with basically unprecedented events like these moving forwards. And I think just and sort of expect that we will need to deal with the what had previously been kind of unexpected events like this. So how do you actually do urban planning with this um degree of surprise and uncertainty for the future? Yeah, well, I think that's a, a huge challenge. Um, I think that that you need to build in, uh, that's really, I think, what resilience at its core, um, in my opinion, is. It's about um, expecting the unexpected and trying to prepare, uh, trying to increase your capacity to actually deal with whatever would be thrown in, in your way, and so I think trying to build in flexibility into your systems, um, not having particularly rigid systems, trying to you know learn from each of these events as they happen, and try to say, okay, what did we learn from this hurricane? How can we adapt our systems to be better prepared for the next one? Um, but in doing and doing that in a way that is flexible, um, I think you can also build in redundancies into your system as much as possible. Um, so you know it's not about optimizing any urban infrastructure or systems for you know too too much for the current um, needs, but actually building in some some redundancy and some flexibility into those systems to allow you to deal with whatever happens. I also think that that we need to start having some more difficult conversations about the way we're, we've planned our cities so far and whether we can maintain all of the infrastructure and communities the way that they are now. I mean, I think that that's the idea of, you know, retreat um, 
or whether all areas should be built back are really, really contentious and difficult questions to have. I mean, is it okay that, that we have developments that are built in, in what we know are currently flood zones, not, not even to mention future flood zones? Um, and you know, how can we figure out a way to equitably and fairly plan for a future where it may no longer be tenable, I think, to have people living in those areas? Thanks, Sarah, for um, your comments. I know retreat is a very contentious and controversial uh, issue when it comes to uh, coastal resilience planning and development, uh, especially in areas like Miami with a lot of coastal infrastructure, um, but that's the case pretty much all around the United States. So that's a good perspective. Uh, let's hear from some others. Uh, let's go back to Matt. So I think updating the and funding the current forecasting systems, so pumping more funding into providing these um, forecasts for people to have real-time updates um, when it comes to upcoming storms, I think would be invaluable when it comes to a proper disaster response. Um, so I'd say that's probably the first and foremost goal of a resilient system. You really have to consider the evacuation strategies that are involved. Um, and then also understanding how the current system could be bolstered um, to alleviate the effects of, say, these one in 100 year storms. Um, in the example of flood events, obviously incorporating pumping systems or stations into a current drainage system is one way of quickly and efficiently removing water out of an area that that doesn't have enough water capacity. Um, so I think this involves a more up-to-date, more frequent assessment of how a, a drainage system our local infrastructure could be bolstered in any way, um, whether or not through green updates or just through improved gray engineered structures um, would probably be the second most important goal. Um, and then third, I would say understanding how we can, on a neighborhood scale or a lot scale, understand how citizens can increase their own resilience on a on their own budget. Um, of course, this comes to being able to have the resources needed to secure their own structures. So we've heard from Sarah, who offered ideas such as coastal retreat uh, for coastal communities to become more resilient to future storms. We heard from Matt, who suggested that, for example, homeowners can take charge of their own climate change adaptation to become more resilient to future storms. How about you, Elaine? What do you think about this problem? So it's, it's like it's recognizing that it's not going to be uh, just the technical problem of redirecting or buffering areas from storm surges. It's going to be a discussion of the types of cities we want to live in, the kinds of uh, equity of access we'll need to achieve to ensure the needs of all social groups are met in these future cities. So, and I think part of it goes down to uh, in, in resilience, one of the questions about resilience is, um, is it, are we talking about resilience of its functioning or the resilience of its structure? And uh, in thinking about resilience 
of the, the function of a city, uh, the resilient functioning of a city. Um, what is the function of the city or what are the functions of a city that we want and uh, for whom do we want it to function? So uh, those, are, those are these kinds of normative decisions that we need to make and normative discussions about uh, who's a part of that city and who, who's functioning the city is for. Um, and it comes, I believe, prior to discussions about the structure and infrastructure, though we do have to maintain a lot of uh, infrastructure and deal with, with problems that are occurring right now, like the floodwaters uh, in, in Miami uh, as we speak. But in, in short, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining a lot of normative discussion going on here uh, regarding, you know, the, the values, the different types of knowledge and the perspectives and, and visions that come into um, developing a, um, a model of a city and its functioning and who it functions for. How do you think Houston in particular could... Uh, redesign itself to become more resilient to future coastal storms? You would have to have adequate uh, drainage in order to sufficiently remove that water out in a timely manner. Um, but when it comes to the Buffalo Bayou watershed, uh, a combination of the fact that there are very much clay soils um, and over the past decade, a decrease in permeable surface area cover um, that has led to decreased infiltration into what would otherwise be areas that would soak in that stormwater over time. So what I'm hearing from you is it's not just, you know, our resilience to these storms or just the storms themselves, but our, the way that we manage our land and do zoning and uh, our stormwater infrastructure, all the engineering decisions, all of that comes into play to make certain events uh, bigger or smaller than it could be naturally. Yes, so this takes in the engineering perspective, um, the technology that's involved, uh, let's say for example, pumping stations um, as part of a drainage infrastructure system um, in order to alleviate that excess rainfall, um, as well as the, the social component, um, which would just be indicating the fact that difference in community structure um, and where residents are living based on um, their uh, particular lots and how that drainage connectivity corresponds to the larger drainage system. Um, a lot of residents across the U.S., um, they have increased in permeable pavement um, across their neighborhood, whereas other low-income neighborhoods may not have that excess um, and that would, it's in a sense, decrease the connectivity of the system to alleviate that extra rainfall. Um, so it is a highly interdisciplinary perspective that comes into understanding the response of a system um, to such an event such as Hurricane Harvey. Uh, thank you, Matt. I wanted to leave some time at the end of our episode to discuss an idea coming out of the Urban Resilience to Extreme Sustainability Research Network uh, by Dr. Michael Chester. Uh, his graduate student, Yuong Kim, and postdoc, Sam Murkoff. The idea is, instead of building fail-safe infrastructure, 
uh, such as the giant dams uh, and, and levees used during Hurricane Katrina to hold back the Mississippi River from flooding New Orleans, eventually those fail-safe infrastructure fail, uh, as it did during Hurricane Katrina, which caused catastrophic flooding and massive loss of life. Uh, but instead of building these levees so that holds the water back uh, and never fails, uh, the idea would be to build infrastructure that could fail, that uh, wouldn't be catastrophic when it does fail. Uh, so we have with us uh, today Sam Murkoff to discuss what some fail-safe infrastructure could actually look like and how it might be used to mitigate flooding in the event of an extreme hurricane. So Sam, could you share with us an example of this concept? The Indian Bend Wash Greenbelt that basically goes from uh, North Tempe all the way up to Scottsdale. Uh, and essentially what it is is a series of um, parks and golf courses kind of like strung together in almost like a chain. And uh, so in, under normal, dry, hot, sunny Arizona conditions, those are sort of recreational areas for people to get outside and golf or play frisbee golf, run around with their pets or their kids. Uh, but it's also designed to essentially be a flood plain or flood channel during our kind of our monsoon season when we have uh, kind of heavy downpours. And so when that happens, the, the, the golf courses in the parks essentially are, we, we allow them to flood and you know, there's some minor inconveniences that you can't go play golf on that day or take your kid to the park, but it's already probably pretty nasty weather outside anyway. So you're not likely to be doing that. And so, um, <clears throat> so we sort of allow those, that part of the, the metropolitan area to flood in order to sort of protect our roadways and our buildings and things like that. And sort of at a larger scale, um, there's sort of been a program going on in the Netherlands for a long time now called, they call it, uh, it's Room for the River. Uh, I'm not going to try and pronounce it in Dutch. Uh, and there the idea is essentially instead of, you know, building right up to the banks of a, of a waterway or a river or putting levees along the banks to keep the water out and then building right up to the edge of the levees uh they give more room to the river so they they set off they set their development further back away from the river so even under normal conditions that might leave sort of a lot of dry wetlands area that's sort of under unutilized or underutilized uh during extreme events the the river is allowed to swell and expand into that space without uh, intersecting or interfering with with infrastructure or people in any meaningful way. And then they've also, uh, with that program, started to take advantage of that wetland space that's normally underutilized by allowing farmers to plant and grow crops there. And then they've put in sort of policy mechanisms in place to uh, subsidize the farmers for any lost crops that they might have under sort of a flooding event. So, um, so yeah, that's a couple sort of creative and, and, and interesting ways to sort of start rethinking how we handle failure or what failure means from our for our infrastructure systems and are there ways to sort of have failure in a more tolerable manageable way from our perspective rather than these sort of catastrophic failure events that we've that we've seen in the past uh months let uh, let alone years um and again that's sort of getting at the idea of allowing more flexibility and and uh adaptability into our infrastructure systems That brings us to the end of today's episode on the 2017 hurricane season. In summary, we learned that a combination of increasing coastal development, 
land use changes, and warmer water temperatures have created the perfect recipe for catastrophic future disasters for our nation's coastal cities. We had a thought-provoking discussion as to whether we are in an era of a new normal for hurricane intensity and frequency, or whether normality is simply dead and we should begin preparing ourselves and cities for surprise. We also learned several strategies for building more resilient cities, given a future likely to have more intense and frequent rainfall, including building safe-to-fail rather than fail-safe infrastructure. Listening to all voices in the city to determine the resilience of what and for who, rethinking where we build and how we can communicate flood risk more effectively and accurately, and taking an integrated social, ecological, and technological systems or SETS approach to urban resilience. Thanks for listening and hope you will stay tuned for our March 1st episode. Thanks again for listening. If you have questions about what you've heard or have suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. See you next time.